Welcome back to your listener. This is Shark Cram, Technical Director at Evidence for Faith. And we are back in our Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies series this week. There's actually a little bit of a fun twist on it uh, this episode since we are in the season of the holidays. So Michael got a little Christmas prophecies in there for you. So as always, if you want to catch up on the previous episodes in the series, you can either scroll back in our podcast list or... There is a course page on our website at evidenceforfaith.org slash courses that where you can look up all the previous episodes in our Messianic Prophecies series. And as always, this program is supported by generous listeners just like you. If you would like to become a donor and directly support this broadcast, you can do so at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael in the Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies Christmas Prophecies Special. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. Um, this is Michael Lane coming to you. And I want to take a, a, a time here to talk to you about the, the season that we're in. We're coming into the Christmas season. And uh, tomorrow is December 31st is the day I'm recording this. Um, and I wanted to just go over something that we many times take for granted in Christianity and has to do with uh, the holidays of Christianity. Christianity does not have many holidays. To many people, Christianity just hosts two holidays. There's Easter and there's Christmas. Now, since ancient times, Christians did celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As it happened at a Passover, which is a, one of the most important Jewish uh, holidays that they have, and we do know that by 155 AD, this was uh, a regular occurrence from the early church writers telling us that Resurrection Day was a major thing. As a matter of fact, there seems to be early church writings that suggest that the Apostle John, before he died, was actually celebrating and leading people in the celebration of the Resurrection Day. Um, again, as it occurred at Passover time, but uh, it, it sort of brings... Uh, a familiarity to to people, but the idea that Easter goes back that far uh, wasn't called Easter at that time. We do know also by the Nicene Council in 325 A.D. they made a ruling on what would become later on called Easter, and they encouraged Christians in this council to take note of the significant day of the resurrection. But they also noted not to include Jewish Passover traditions with it. Uh, there was already a, a schism happening very strong at this point between Judaism and, and Christianity. And because of that, they said, do not observe any of these Jewish traditions that take place at Passover. That's why many times we, we don't today. We do know also about 65 years later or so in 390 AD when the Apostolic Constitution was written by the early church leaders. They authorized the celebration of what we now call Easter. But I don't want to talk about Easter. We'll talk about Easter in Easter time in the spring. <clears throat> I want to focus on Christmas. And the prophecies is what we're going to do today is we're going to get into the prophecies of Christmas. We see these all the time We um, in bulletin pictures that we have in our churches, or if you watch specials on TV, we come across these different um, 
things that happen in the Christmas story. But a lot of people don't realize how much prophecy is involved here and what all that means. But Christmas, unlike Easter, Christmas had a really different beginning. Oh, wow. Um, It was not celebrated in the early church. Uh, Not at all. Uh, This was actually mainly due for a number of reasons. First of all, birthdays were not celebrated in ancient times. Hardly any ancient culture would celebrate birthdays. Why celebrate the the birth of someone? Because actually they did very little um, in getting born. It was the work of the mother, more or less. So in ancient times, they didn't celebrate birthdays. So it's just not like today. We make big extravaganzas and, and do all sorts of parties and giving out gifts and stuff. That that came much later. So in the, in the early Christian history, we didn't celebrate Christmas because, for one, uh, birthdays were not celebrated. Second, the actual day of Jesus's birth is a mystery. <clears throat> uh, None of the gospel writers, Matthew or Luke, who record uh, Jesus's birth, neither one of them give us any time of specific to the day time frame in the Jewish calendar. So we don't have that. So there's a mystery involved in that. Though people and um, scholars have, and you can get a good idea of when Jesus would have been born because... um, the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes a lot about John the Baptist and his uh, birth and his father Zacharias and Elizabeth, and he goes into their genealogy. And you can use that. Uh, this goes beyond what we'll talk about right now. We'll cover this um, in when I do the Road to Emmaus like uh, series later. Um, as we get into the John the Baptist, the forerunners of the Messiah, but uh, in the book of Malachi, but. Because Luke actually mentions um, the priestly division of Zacharias, we know that he would have been on uh, serving in the temple at certain times of the year, which was set up back in the days of Solomon, that certain divisions of the priests would serve at certain uh, times of the year. And Jewish tradition, um, actually Christian Jewish or uh, Messianic Jews, um, they sort of, most of them celebrate or they think that, I, maybe they don't celebrate, but they actually believe that Jesus was born around um, the the Feast of the Tabernacles time, which is a fall time, which was um, taking place. It's sometimes called the Feast of Booths, but at this time period, it's usually in September or October, uh, which is uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as it's called in the Bible, is, is sort of like a Jewish Thanksgiving. And they believe that's when Jesus might have been born. But what day? We don't know. All, we pretty much know it was not December 25th. We'll just give you that right now. That is That was not it. Um, There was already a lot of celebrations going on uh, around the end of December in the ancient cultures. Not not Jewish, but in Greek, Egyptian, um, Roman, Celtic, uh, Germanic. I mean, there's Spanish. There was all sorts of celebrations occurring at that time. Why? Because it's the winter solstice. And so uh, days are getting shorter. And then all of a sudden it's like the sun gets reborn and uh, days start getting longer again. So they had all sorts. Different cultures had all sorts of pagan celebrations. Yes, they were pagan. Um, And like they would celebrate... uh, um, um, 
certain holidays in the Roman Empire where they gave gifts and there was feasting at this time of year. Um, some Germanic tribes actually had a celebration also where they went out and, and cut down a tree and brought it in and decorated trees. Um, there was also the Yule Log, um, which takes um, that goes back to the um, Northern Europe tri- uh, areas and stuff. There's uh, mistletoe, which was something that the Celts had. Um, Vikings also used, and, and Saxons used mistletoe and and holly and things. So a lot of these things were going on already, not really uh, in no way associated with the birth of Christ. These were just pagan celebrations, many of them dealing with their idols that they worshiped, the gods that they worshiped in those times. And what ends up happening, um, Christians start thinking, um, wow, we would really like to celebrate Christmas and and the birth of Christ. And so what they did, uh, they started, (laughs) well, really what happened was every every single uh, end of December, People were celebrating these. Even when they became Christians and, and walked away from these idol, the idol worship and stuff, those traditions, those fun feasts and uh, gift giving and stuff really uh, had a hold of people and people didn't want to give that up. Even when they became Christians, even though it's a pagan culture, they, they were like, I, this is a lot of fun, gift giving and, and decorating and, and having a Yule log and, and you know, doing different things at Christmas time. And that's what ended up happening. So what what occurs is Christians, since they were still doing it, started taking the holidays, but then they changed the meanings behind them and gave them a Christian meaning. And if you go, many times I have heard many, many sermons on everything from candy canes to uh, Yule logs to the Christmas tree um, to mistletoe, et cetera, et cetera, all dealing and, and gift exchange, dealing with um, a Christian meaning. But those Christian meanings came after um, because Christians didn't want to give these things up. We do know that by the Reformation, uh, many of these rituals were now commonplace in in the nations around, in Christian nations, and they just didn't want to give these up. Uh, f- for instance, give, let me give you another example. The Puritans, uh, when they came over, uh, we just got done celebrating Thanksgiving, the separatists, pilgrims, Puritans, um, they did not celebrate Christmas. As a matter of fact, Governor Bradford threatened, he writes about this, he threatened the New England people uh, with, if they got caught celebrating any type of Christian tr- uh, a Christmas tradition, he would give them extra work to do. He would put them in jail and fine them or fine them. And so there was um, obs- uh, there were really some obstacles about doing Christmas at that time during the 16 and even into the 1700s in the colonies here and actually in other places around the world. Some churches, some denominations and stuff just were set against having Christmas celebrations. Even though it was a nice thing to celebrate the birth of Christ, they didn't want to celebrate it because, for, as I say, we don't know the day and they started just putting it to this. Well, what ends up happening um, Christmas does finally get uh, endorsed in the United States in 1836. It was 1836 when it started. Um, And what helped it along was something that took place in England, Victorian England. Um, At this time, there was a book that was written by a Christian man, claimed to be a Christian. His name is Charles Dickens. Maybe you already know what I'm going to say. His little short novel, The uh, A Christmas Carol. I love this book. It's one of my 
favorite books. Um, they've made about seven or eight different versions of, of the book on television and movies and stuff like this. And I try to watch every single one of them. My wife doesn't understand this of me. She says, why, why do you watch all of them every single Christmas? I love this, the story. It's great. But what Charles Dickens did is he took a lot of these things that were going on around, you know, in, in, the, in the church and, and in people, Christians themselves, and he captured it all into a cute little novel called A Christmas Carol. And this is where we get the whole idea of the Christmas spirit. And if you're familiar with A Christmas Carol, you know this comes out very, very strong, this Christmas spirit. And when that book was written, it just took off all over and people started then celebrating and finding a good reason for celebrating Christmas. So that's why we celebrate Christmas. And, you know, we've taken a lot of different things uh, from the past. We've, we've married them to a Christian tradition and put them all together. And even like the, uh, the Night Before Christmas story, um, which was written by someone who worked worked at, um, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he he worked at Moody Bible um, and he wrote this poem and we get a little bit more about St. Nick and everything all by that. But all of this really started, the real Christmas spirit started with Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol. But there's another book that talks about Christmas. Of course, Matthew and Luke in the New Covenant or New Testament do. I don't want to talk about those as much as I want to talk about the birth of Christ as was foretold in the Old Covenant, in the, um, in the Old Testament, because it is, some of it is described in such interesting detail by various people writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a few of these, 11 in particular, 11 Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant prophecies concerning the birth of Christ. So, are you ready? Let's start with number one. And I'll, I'll give you the number, I'm going to give you a title that I put to it, and then I'll give you the passage, and we'll read the passage, and then describe it. First of all, number one, the purpose. This is the purpose of Jesus having to come, the purpose of the Messiah. And believe it or not, it starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's one of the first major messianic prophecies that you find in the Old Testament. This is just setting the scene. Adam and Eve have just sinned. They've tried to fix the problem themselves. They can't. Sin has now entered the cosmos. It has ruined everything. God's paradise that he had set up for everything was ruined. And death has now entered the picture. Before this, there was no death. There was no predator-prey relationship before the first sin. Because Paul writes in Romans that death entered uh, the cosmos because of sin. And Jesus had to come to conquer death, which is the result of sin. So that's where it started. And in Genesis 3.15, and I'll be reading this out of the English Standard Version, um, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now this verse is mentioning the coming of the Messiah. Uh, he will be a suffering Messiah. Did you note that it says you will bruise his heel? It's a suffering Messiah. Actually, Scripture describes two different messiahs. The suffering messiah, who that's who Jesus is when he came in his ministry, being born at Christmas time and stuff. He came as the suffering messiah. And he'll return as the second type of messiah. Same person, it's Jesus. He will then come as not as the suffering messiah, but as the victorious warrior judge king in the future. And that's having to do with eschatology. But sorrow, pain, anguish, 
This Messiah is going to going to experience all this. And as we all know, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus definitely fills this bill here. Uh, this verse also states something else, though, that the Messiah wouldn't just appear as the woman at the well in John chapter four said, you know, and that's what a lot of Jews thought, that he was just going to appear. No, that is not correct. This verse states that the Messiah would be born of a woman. The person who's going to fix the problem of sin and who's going to suffer in doing it is going to be born of a woman. That's right there because it says your offspring and her offspring. So it, it has that right in there, born of a woman. So the Messiah is going to be born of a woman. Why a woman? Because the Messiah has to be human. But he's got to be more than that, because all humans are born into sin. Um, Jesus, though, did not sin. He didn't have a biological father that was human. Joseph, remember, was his uh, stepdad. The father of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So he had to be both God and he had to be human. But that's where the first one goes. Number two, the star. Oh, don't we love this part of the Christmas story? The wise men following the star. This goes back to the book uh, of Numbers in the Torah. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And it reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise up out of Jacob. Israel. Now, this passage is very important because there's a couple of things here. Moses is speaking, of course. God is telling him what to write down. He's writing this down. And Moses is talking about, this is a messianic prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And he says, he's not coming like right now. Not now. Um, he's not near right now. He's, it's going to be later. And how will you recognize him? There's going to be a star come out of Jacob and he will have a scepter, so it's a king, etc., shall rise out of Israel. So it's messianic. We're all familiar with the Christmas star. Um, the wise men going to Bethlehem, seeing the, the Messiah child. Uh, Moses wrote this down, by the way, 1,400 years before this event happened. 1,400 years, uh, give or take a, a few years, but that span of time before it ever happened. And that's exactly what happened, a star. Um, so this prophecy being found in the Torah is most likely how the wise men knew that a star would announce the Messiah's birth. Now, just let's take a, a moment here and talk just briefly about the wise men. We'll talk to them about them a little bit later on. The wise men come from the east. Another name for wise men is Magi. And if you go back into the Old Testament, you get into Daniel chapter 1, you'll find out that Daniel and his three friends are also magi. Matter of fact, Daniel is appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar, the chief of all the magi, of all the wise men. And so Daniel um, writes his book. Well, all the following magi are going to have a copy of his book. But Daniel also, as he's in Babylon, if you read his book, you will see he reads um, some books from the Old Covenant. He obviously had the book of Jeremiah because he mentions uh, at times reading Jeremiah. He writes this down. Daniel also uh, most likely had a copy of the Torah that would have been taken with the Jews uh, so that they could study and learn. So Daniel would have had all of these, uh, most of the books of the Old Covenant. Probably not all of them, but he definitely had many of them. And so these get passed down, they get copied, they get passed down to the wise men. Um, and so by the time of Christ's birth, the wise men are, have have these things, they're familiar with them, and when a star is starting to appear, they're like, oh, 
Here's that prophecy from Numbers 24. A star is coming, a new king, the Messiah is going to be born. And where is he coming from? From the land of Israel. That's how they identify it. And by the way, just a little side note too. Um, When the wise men do come, they were not there on the night Jesus was born. Um, If you recall in the story, according to Luke, as Mary and Joseph are heading down to Bethlehem from Nazareth, um, there's no room for them in the inn. Bethlehem was a very small village at that time. And what ends up happening, of course, they go into the stable. And in Bethlehem, there's lots of caves in this area. And even today, the Church of Nativity um, is the supposed place because there's a cave that that was there where Jesus was born. Uh, I've been down in this, um, it's called the Grotto, underneath the Church of Nativity. And I've been in there and I've led uh, groups through. And you can see the spot um, by tradition says this is where Jesus was born. There's a manger right across from it, made of stone built into the wall that you can see this. But um, whether that's the actual place, we don't know for sure, but it's it's probably very close to it anyway. But the point I'm making is that they are not in a house. When the wise men come, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, you start getting into this. When the wise men come, the wise men go and they find the baby Jesus, but it says that they went to his house. They went to the house of Mary and Martha. It actually says their house. So being in a stable, someone's borrowed stable to give birth. Here, the wise men, the Magi are meeting them in a house. That's right there. You can see it's not fitting. So the wise men, these Magi came later. Also, It says in Matthew that when they came to and they bowed down and worshiped the child, the word here that is used for child is not the word for infant. In Luke, when Jesus is born in the stable, it's the word for infant. When you get to the book of Matthew and it's talking about the wise men, it's actually the word for toddler. So he's a toddler. He's not an infant when they show up to worship him. So just a little side note on there just to let you know. So yes, most of our creches, our decorations and stuff have it wrong. <laughs> but that's what Christian traditions um, or Christmas traditions, is a Christmas traditions have actually done a lot of things to this. But let's go on. Number three, number three, the Son of God. This comes from Psalm chapter two. So if you have your Bibles open, Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two is full of messianic prophecies. We're going to focus on verse seven, where it says, the Lord said to me, you are my God. Today I have begotten you. The Messiah will be born of a woman. We already got that. So he's going to be born of a woman. Now it says who he is. You are my son. He will be the son of God. And as I say, this entire psalm is messianic. But one of the key things about the Messiah, he is the son of God. Thus, Joseph is not his biological father. The Holy Spirit is his father. Mary was his mother. He is both the son of a human and he is the son of God. He's 100% human. He's 100% God. He's not half and half. He's 100% plus 100%. Don't ask me how to uh, figure that out mathematically. You just have to accept it. I mean, even even Luke was flabbergasted in trying to describe this. Um, he, He did it this way to make sure, though, God did it this way to make sure that no one else could claim to be the Messiah because the Messiah cannot have a biological father because he has to be the son of God. So there's most people who are born of a biological father. Um, And Joseph is not the father of Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit is the Father. So he is the Son of God, which takes us to number four. Number four, gifts given to the Messiah. Let's skip down now, staying in Psalm, to Psalm chapter 72, verses 10 and 11. And it reads, May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Now, I'm not going to get into the meanings of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, There are some fascinating lessons about that, but that's not the point. I just want to get to the point here that, that... when uh, the Messiah is born, gifts are given to him. In Matthew's account is where this is at, because that's the whole Magi story is in Matthew's account. Um, He describes the Magi Magi coming from the Eastern lands uh, to worship and offer gifts to the Messiah. So that part of the Christmas story that they came and offered gifts wasn't just a coincidence, it was prophesied that they would do this. So that was a major part to it. Uh, Let's go to number five, the line of David the line of David. Now this one, oh my gosh, we could pick so many scriptures for this. It would take us a long time just to read them all because there are so many. I'm just going to focus on one chapter in Psalm again, Um, just a little bit further uh, down the line from where we were. We're going to go to Psalm 89, but there's two sections I want to look at in here, verses 3 and 4 and then verses 35 and 36. And it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then Psalm 35 and 36, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Now, in both these passages, we see that the Messiah will be a descendant of King David. Um, Oh, like I say, there's many others we could use, but this does show us that he will be in the line of King David. And you can take a look at either Matthew chapter 1 or Luke, uh, what is it, chapter 3, where it gives you the genealogies. You'll notice that um, Matthew's account is really interesting because it starts with with Abraham, who is the first of the Hebrews, showing that um, God fulfilling the promise that he made to uh, Abraham. And Abraham, of course, is an ancestor of David. And then it goes through the kings um, up through until you finally come um, to Joseph. And then in the, the, the way the Greek is set up, it, it's not saying Joseph was the father, the biological father, but he was the legal father of, of uh, the Messiah, of Jesus. Whereas in Luke's account, early Christian writers write that uh, and and describe that Luke interviewed many Christians to get the story correct. And uh, tradition says that he actually interviewed Mary for parts of it. This is Mary's genealogy. Notice that it goes all the way back to the first human, Adam. Remember I said the, the Messiah has to be human? So Mary's genealogy goes all the way back. It starts with the very first human ever created. And it goes all the way through Abraham and you get to, you know, they're very similar as you go along here. But once you get to David, it differs because Joseph is a descendant of David's son Solomon, where Mary is a descendant of a different son of David, uh, Nathan, who's a different one, not the same. So it's not the kingly uh, lineage, uh, but it is definitely 
Davinic. It is definitely David. Um, some of these, sometimes people just get absolutely crazy when they come to these genealogies. And I got to admit, sometimes these genealogies have put me to sleep uh, reading these. And you think, why did God put those in there? Was it to give us a sedative? No, there are some fascinating things that are fulfilled and that you can learn by studying the genealogies. Um, Let me just take you on a short little rabbit trail to explain the confusing statement I just made. But you see, going back um, in the Old Covenant and going back into the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, God makes a law. It's a very interesting law. Look at this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. He says, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, what's this got to do with Christmas? As I say, when you sit and you study these things, and there's more you can do with this. I'm just giving you one example as you study this stuff. It's fascinating. Take a look at Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Notice, as I said, the genealogy starts with Abraham. Now, we have Abraham. He has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Judah. But when you go back in Genesis and you read about Judah, we have a problem with that law in Deuteronomy. Judah has a sinful and forbidden union with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. That's forbidden union. It's against the law. According to God's law, this um, forbidden marriage denies the descendants now to enter into the assembly of the Lord for how many generations? Ten. There is a curse here from God on the line until the tenth generation. Now, let's go back to Matthew and look at the genealogy. We stopped with Judah. So Judah, you'll notice, has a son named Perez. Perez has a son. And by the way, we should just number these. Judah, number one, has Perez. Perez, number two, has uh, Hezon. Hezon, this is number three, has Ram. Ram, number four, has Aminadab. uh, Aminadab. Number five has a son, Nashon. Nashon, sorry. Nashon, number six, has Salmon. Salmon, number seven, has Boaz. Boaz, number eight, has Obed. Obed, number nine, has Jesse. And then Jesse is the tenth. As you see, Jesse has David. Now you come to the curse is over. And the Messiah can come through here. Isn't this cool that this works out like that? David is God's special king who begins the kingship of the king of kings. The curse has been eliminated and purified by David. Interesting, isn't it? What we see back in Deuteronomy with the law, a curse 
that seems like as you read this, these genealogies and you read about Judah's um, sin here, and oh my gosh, this, this should disqualify, but oh my gosh, no, it doesn't work like that. So you can learn a lot of things by genealogies. They're just not there to make a, a nice sedative. If you're having problems sleeping at night, opening up your Bible and reading genealogies to put you to sleep. Uh, that's No, there are a lot of lessons you can pull out of them. That was just one. There's, there's others, but let's move on. Number six. Number six. This is the virgin birth. Oh, most people are familiar with this passage. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I'm again reading this out of the English Standard Version. Some versions, um, some translations of the Bible do not have the word virgin here. This is a very controversial thing among Christians um, with certain translations because some translations substitute the word woman here. That, behold, the woman shall conceive and bear a son. And some will even, and I've heard this preached from the pulpit, that some will say that this is not messianic at all. It's talking about Isaiah's son. No, because God is giving a sign, and it's just going to be a supernatural event. Now, what's going on here? Let's, let's take a look at this, because this is so important. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because in the Hebrew, the actual word used here in the ancient manuscripts is the word Alma. Alma which can mean young woman, true. It can mean that, and that's why some translations put it there. Uh, liberal translations will often translate it that way. And almond can mean young woman, yes. But, you know, if you study this word and you go through the Old Covenant, um, which was written mostly in Hebrew, as you go through this, you're going to notice something when you do checking the word alma being in use. It's always referring to a virgin. Even the Septuagint that's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written um, maybe 200 years before Christ. They took, because Alexander the Great had come and Hellenized the world and made Greek the standard language throughout the entire empire. So the disciples, I mean, this is all God's plan. The disciples will now be able to go out if they, you know, by speaking uh, Greek, Paul could speak Greek fluently and he could go anywhere in the world and tell people about Jesus um, because of what Alexander had done. But they took the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and they translated, the Jewish scholars um, did this, and they called it the Septuagint. It's sometimes abbreviated in writing as LXX. Um, that's just the uh, numerical symbol having to do with how many leaders were putting this thing together. But anyway, um, that's the Septuagint. And then in the Septuagint, it doesn't use the word woman. It uses the word parthenos, which is Greek for virgin. So, the Septuagint even uses virgin. That's what the meaning is here. Um, don't let revisionists try and change all of this in your minds and stuff. This is speaking of a supernatural event. I mean, really, let's think about this for a second. A woman giving a birth. If this is Isaiah's wife or something giving birth, what, what big supernatural event is that? Women give birth to babies all the time. By the time I finish this sentence, there's probably going to be over 100 babies born somewhere on the planet. That's not the Lord giving a sign. No, the Lord giving a sign would be a virgin giving birth, because that doesn't happen every day. That hardly, I mean, that's, that's a miracle in itself. A virgin giving birth. I mean, that's, that's a sign from God. And Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Had to be. So that no man could 
could claim to be the biological father of Jesus. As I said, Joseph wasn't Jesus's biological dad. Remember, Jesus had to be both human, which he got from Mary, and God, which he got from the Holy Spirit to fulfill the prophecies and die for us. Now, look at the next part in this, this thing, it's, uh, this verse, it says, notice his name. Um, his name is Emmanuel. Im is the Hebrew word for with us, El is a name for God, like Elohim, El Shaddai. It's a name for God. And so God with us. This is a supernatural event. Thus, having the word Alma being translated as virgin is absolutely correct. Not young woman. The virgin, a supernatural birth. Takes us, we're going to stay in Isaiah, it takes us to the number seven prophecy of what we're doing. A child is born. If you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, you're going to know this. Um, Isaiah 9, 6 reads, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This passage is so important to know who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. Don't let that word frighten you. Incarnate simply means to be in human flesh. Incarno, the Latin word incarno, in flesh, in meat. Um, I like to have chili, and I don't like chili just by itself. I like chili con carne, chili with meat. My wife makes a fantastic chili, and I'd love to eat that, uh, a, a big scoopful of that over a bowl of white rice. I don't know why I do it that way, but I do. It's puzzling her, too, but that's how I love to eat my chili. Um, but it's got to have meat in it. And, um, or you get the word carnivore. Carnivore, a meat eater. That's, that's all this is. So don't let the, the word incarnate, Jesus incarnate, scare you or anything. It just means that he's in the flesh. Jesus is human because of Mary. Yet he is God. Don't forget that. Uh, don't ask me to explain it. Just We'll just let it go at that. Um, it's one of the mysteries of God no human can figure out. Now, I want to draw attention to who Jesus is, though. The phrase, his name shall be called, is important as well. In ancient Jewish culture, names were not just a title but meant something, particularly in the Old Covenant. They meant something um, having to do with the person. Notice how Jesus' name is in heaven. It says, Wonderful Counselor. Now, that's, that's, there's no comma in between here. This means Wonderful Counselor, not Wonderful Counselor, Mighty, God, Everlasting, Father, Prince, of peace. That's not how it goes. It's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, sometimes people may approach your front door and knock on it and you open it up and they'll try and tell you that Jesus is not God and that Jesus didn't exist prior to his human birth. Well, um, these people seldom come to my door anymore and I'm actually thankful for that. Um, because I will often use this verse um, to debunk their heresy that uh, Jesus is not eternal, that he's not God. Notice that God in this passage, and it's God telling Isaiah what to write, God says that his son is everlasting 
Father. It's right in there. The title, everlasting, that's a strong evidence, piece of evidence that Jesus is eternal, everlasting. Uh, not to mention you have John chapter 1, the first three verses talk about Jesus is the eternal God, that he is the creator God, or Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Again, that everything that is created exists because Jesus created it. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, again, we read that Jesus is the creator God. And if he's doing the creating, that means he's already there. Thus, he is the eternal God. That's very simple. Now, some Christians ask why Jesus is called Heavenly Father instead of Son of God here. As I teach Bible classes for college students and stuff, I've been asked this uh, uh, frequently. Why is it? Why why does Jesus appear not to be called Everlasting Father? They reason that if God, uh, the Father, God is the Father and Jesus is the Son, how can Jesus Christ be then the Everlasting Father? Do you follow what they're saying here? Because that's the way, it, it, if you just look at this shallow um, reading here, that's what it appears. Um, how can Jesus Christ, the Son, be everlasting Father? Well, this verse is not teaching that Jesus Christ is the Father. No, we worship a triune God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God, but he's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is uh, God, and the Holy Spirit is separate. So we have the th- these three, it's it's a three-in-one triune God. We commonly call, uh, have put the term to this as called Trinity, though that word's not in the Bible, but that's what it's talking about. And no one can understand this. So you just sort of have to explain it. Scholars for 2,000 years have tried to explain this, and they can't figure it out. Um, but what this verse is, this verse is not teaching that Jesus Christ is the Father. If you go back, now we're reading this out of English. If you go back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew sentence structure here literally states that, you could translate it this way, he is the father of eternity. That's what this is meaning, everlasting father. Jesus, the father of eternity. This means that Jesus is the controller or Jesus is the authority of eternal life. He's the one who gives eternal life is Jesus Christ. That's his title. And I'm often asked why in the Gospels Jesus is never called this name. How come when people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up to him, how come they never say, hey, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? Why don't they ever say that? And why doesn't Jesus, when he would talk about himself, why doesn't he always just sign things himself at the end of his statements by saying, I am the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? What's going on here is... Um, to explain this, why isn't this title used uh, here on earth and in Jesus's ministry is because this is his heavenly name. If you go to the book of Revelation, you start to see these names being used again in, in heaven. This, these names are his heavenly title. Jesus instead had a favorite phrase for himself. He always called himself, if you ever notice this, the son of man. How many times he uses that? people would say something and he would answer by saying, well, the son of man, I am the son of man, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they, they don't catch it that he's actually claiming to be God here. You see, the son of man is a messianic term found in the book of Daniel. Daniel writes that, that it will be a term. 
Uh, I remember a number of years ago at uh, a Christian camp I used to work at, I had a, a group of about oh, 60 or 70 high school students that I was asked to come down and do a, a round table discussion with. They set me in the middle. And uh, many of these kids were not church kids. Um, and so I had spoken that morning, but now in the afternoon or in the evening, they they opened up for questions. And one of the questions that um, a guy had, and as he read it, a couple of people echoed it with him. They said, "Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. So why do you guys? He's never claimed to be the Messiah. Why why do you Christians say this?" I said, "Oh yes, he did. Certain times in John, he actually used the name uh, I am, but." He also, I said, what's the most frequent term you ever heard of Jesus? You ever heard him called? I asked him, you ever heard him called the son of man? They said, yeah. And I go, that goes back from Daniel. And Daniel's talking about the Messiah. That's a messianic title. So every time Jesus is calling himself the son of man, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming that title. Oh, so Jesus did claim to be the son of God, uh, the Messiah, numerous times. By the way, the name Jesus is the English equivalent for Joshua, what we commonly call Joshua. Yasha. Yasha, which means God saves. Yah, at the beginning of Yasha, it's Y-A-S-H-A, um, is the transliteration of it. Yasha, Yah, is another, like L, it's another name for God. So God saves. Let's go to number eight. The time for the Messiah's arrival. This is Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. Do you ever wonder, out, ever wonder how the wise men figured out that the Messiah was being born? That he was gonna be born? How he got born? Oh yeah, we've already talked about they had the star. Sure, they had the star. Uh, but how did they know the significance of all this? Where did they get the information? As I said, the wise men, unlike the Christmas carol we sing, We Three Kings of Orient, these wise men were not kings, they were magi. Back in the day of Daniel, as I said, Daniel was the chief magi, and he had many books of the Old Covenant. Um, he writes about that. So they had as, uh, access to these books. Now, Daniel, at, at this time, he's writing about the coming. In chapter 9, he's writing about the coming of the Messiah. And as he's doing this, he's giving us a cipher, uh, a cipher, a puzzle is what it is. And he's going to give us a puzzle. And it's an interesting puzzle. Um, and depends on what translation you use, some of the wording will be very different. But I'm going to read this out of the English Standard, because that's what I've been using. And I'm going to read these th um, verse 24, 25, 26, 27, and just follow along here. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again, with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks, an anointed one 
shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of that week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until decree is end and poured out on the desolator. Now, this is a cipher. It's a puzzle. Wise men love these kind of things. This is what they get into. So as we study this now, and you see what's going on, what's happening is, now in, in the English Standard Version, one of the problems I have with English Standard is that it says weeks. This is not a really good translation uh, into English. Um, it could be, um, it, another way uh, of saying it is sevens. Uh, other translations, yeah, some will say 77s, and they use sevens. They never use the word weeks. They put uh, sevens in here. Uh, other translations say periods of time. So there's a lot of different ways it's translated, but if you get into this, it's talking about years is what's going on. Daniel is telling us, now he mentions um, about something happening Someone's going to be coming is what's com- what this is talking about, who's going, to, um, who's going to come and he's going to put an end to transgression. Uh, or transgression. It says specifically, put an end to sin, to atone for sins, atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. Well, who is the one who does this? Who is the one who brought an end to sin? Who is the one that atones for iniquities? Uh, and who is the one who brings and gives righteousness to people? It's Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. This is a messianic passage of when the Messiah will be born. So Daniel is visited by the, uh, by the angel Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, the same Gabriel as you read about in the New Testament. Um, it seems like any time Gabriel's mentioned, always has to do something with the birth of the Messiah. So Gabriel is telling this cipher to Daniel, who's writing this thing down. Um, and he tells him this puzzle, or mystery, if you will, with these periods of time. And what it is, is when the Messiah is going to be doing these things, when he's going to put an end to iniquity, to atone, bring righteousness. You'll notice it even gives you a starting point. But let's look at this. It starts off just, it's verse 24. It says, seven, 77. So seven, we have seven basic sevens. Um, so seven times seven, basically, is what we 70 weeks. So seven times seven in verse 24, that's 49 years. Just do arithmetic here. Seven times seven is 49. So there's going to be 49 years, and then something's going to happen. And there's a starting point for this whole thing. It says in there, um, in verse 25, when Jerusalem is rebuilt. Well, we know that's from the book of Nehemiah, that Jerusalem was rebuilt by Nehemiah and in the year 444 B.C. That's when he built it. So, we have 62. Now, if you've got a pad of paper, you might need to write this down just to see and keep it straight in your mind. It starts off with seven sevens, and we have that's 49 years, seven times seven. Then it says 62 sevens. So, 62 times seven is 434 years. So, we have 49 and three or 434. Now take that 434, add the 49 to it, that gives you 483 years. But remember, you have a starting point. The starting point is the year 444 BC. Now add 
483 years to 444 BC. Now, before you move forward, I got to tell you something. This is written to Hebrews by a Hebrew. You have to use a Hebrew calendar. You got to use the Jewish calendar, which is different than the calendar we use today. It had 360 days a year, then every now and then they would add an extra month. But it's 360 day, not 365. So if you add all this together, um, and because it's BC, you got to remember, you're adding years, you're coming, you're counting down. And what you're going to come down to, it's like using negative numbers in, in arithmetic here, but what you're going to come down to is you're going to come out to the year three or 33 A.D., 33 AD. That's what this cipher is. Now, there's a final one week in there. That's in the future. That's eschatology. That one talks about the abomination and stuff. That's the beast. That's the future. That week hasn't happened yet. But what we've got here is the birth of the Messiah. When sin is going to be done away with iniquity, when righteousness is going to be given, when was all that taking place? When Jesus was on the cross. If Jesus was crucified around 330 or 33 AD, that fits this perfectly. And that appears to be about the time Jesus was crucified. Give or take a year because we really messed up the calendars. Anyway, the wise men knew also, because they had the Torah, they knew about the star, that to go into ministry, Jesus would have to be 30 years old. Now, we're at 33 AD, but he, has, he will be an adult when he removes sin and stuff, and he has to be 30 years old to start that. So, and he's going to have to have some time for his prophecies and stuff, or um, for his ministry, as he's doing his ministry to do all this, um, which we know is about three and, uh, three and a half years Jesus' ministry was going on. And um, that takes us to, and we know that Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry, because Luke actually says that. Directly, he says it flat out in chapter 1, that Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. Um, why? We can get into it in a different lesson, but that's what it is. So if you have 33, now go back um, in time, 30 years, because he has to be 30 years old, you're going to have to go back some here. You're going to get an idea of when this star is going to arrive, and then the wise men, they, they know this. They know somewhere about um, right around the time of maybe 4 B.C. to 4 A.D., somewhere in the span, the Messiah is going to be born. He will be signaled by a star in the east that they're supposed to bring gifts for, and you see it all lays out perfectly. That's how this all works. Isn't that fascinating? Well, I never knew you had to use math to do with prophecies and stuff, did you? Let's move on. Number nine. Number nine, called out of Egypt. This is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And um, these last ones, these will go pretty quick here. In um, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Matthew's Christmas account, Joseph and Mary have to flee from Herod the Great, who's seeking to kill the baby Jesus. And so God warns Joseph of this, and he takes the family and abruptly leaves and flees to Egypt. Why Egypt? It was a prophecy from Hosea. Also, if you go back in the book of Genesis, the Israelites were living in Canaan, but to avoid dying of starvation, to avoid death, they moved to Egypt, where Joseph was. And that's where they stayed until the Exodus. But the Israelites, to avoid death, went to Egypt. Here, you have Mary, Martha, or I'm sorry, Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing to avoid death, going to Egypt. Number 10, the birthplace. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and it reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose origin is of old from ancient days. Now, this is obviously one book the wise men did not have because they knew all the stuff we've talked about before, but they didn't know where. They didn't have the book of Micah, obviously. So they had to come and they went to Jerusalem to ask Herod, who called himself the king of kings, to ask him, where's the, the, um, the true king of kings, the Messiah going to be born? Um, he didn't know. Herod wouldn't know. He's an Edomite. He's not even Jewish. So the scribes come in and say, oh, it's written in Micah. Obviously, they didn't have that book. And then they go off and they go to, to, my, um, to Bethlehem. What I find fascinating about this part of the Christmas story is Bethlehem is such a small village at this time, very small. Probably only had one inn, only had maybe 300. Some scholars say it might have had up to 600 people living there. Um, it was very small, very insignificant little place. Yet God uses the small and the insignificant for the birth of his Messiah. As a matter of fact, God uses the small and the insignificant for his kingdom. Many people working for God are small, insignificant, and God uses them. Don't think that you're not useful for God because you're not an important person in your own eyes or something. You're not significant in your own eyes. No, in the eyes of God, you are significant, just like Bethlehem is a significant place. And then we take the last one. This is number 11, the forerunner. The forerunner. This has to do with John the Baptist. This comes out of Malachi, and there's two uh, prophecies here we have to look at Malachi 3 1, and later on Malachi 4 5. Let's read them both here. It reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come out or come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. So why Luke includes um, the birth of John the Baptist is because of this prophecy. Luke does this, Matthew doesn't, so it's in there. John the Baptist had to be born before Jesus because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. So we get this in Luke's gospel. That's how he starts off the Christmas story. Before he gets into the Christmas story, he tells you about the forerunner. I mean, it's all set up perfectly. And John the Baptist did point the people to the Messiah. If we recall, he even says in the Gospel of John, Behold, there is the man who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed his disciples to this guy. This is who you should follow. Don't follow me anymore. Follow this guy. He is the one. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. What a what a humble person. At the height of his ministry, he sees his time is now over. He's fulfilled his prophecy. He's pointing people, go follow the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is a humble person. How many people would step aside at this point at the height of their ministry to just walk to the side and let the other person, the more worthy person, get the glory? That was John the Baptist. So we've seen in this Christmas story was foretold hundreds of years before it ever took place in history. What's more, it happened exactly as God said. And what I think is most fascinating about this, just taking these 11 prophecies and looking at them in the passages, and you take the odds. What's the odds of one guy being born and fulfilling all these? It's astronomical. As a matter of fact, it's almost impossible if it's not impossible. 
But Jesus is God, and he did it. Jesus came to remove sin in a single day. He came to give eternal life and abundant life to all who come to him. Do you know Jesus as your Savior today? I want to thank you for joining me for this little journey here of Christmas prophecies. And as the Christmas season unfolds, please look at it carefully and see in the decorations, in the season, in the readings, how all these prophecies came true. Until we meet again, God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.